And I just got to thinking about, gee, when I was a dust-off pilot in Vietnam, that was truly the most satisfying thing I'd ever done in my life. And I kind of like in my retirement to go back to serving with patients and doctors and the medical community. Just wanted to get close to it once again. So I went to Walter Reed and told him I wanted to be a volunteer. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome back retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Steve Pett to WarDocs. Steve served as a medical evacuation helicopter pilot in Vietnam and is an inductee of the Dust Off Hall of Fame. He later became a Red Cross volunteer at Walter Reed in the Department of Rehabilitation. In this episode, you'll hear about Steve's experiences as a Red Cross volunteer in military medicine. He shares some of the opportunities available to those who want to contribute, and he also tells some inspiring stories about the many wounded warriors he's encountered over the past 16 years as a volunteer. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to continue our discussion with retired Lieutenant Colonel and Army aviator, Steve Pepp. Steve, thanks for joining us today. It's good to be back with you. So in our previous episode, we had the opportunity to hear about your experience as a a dust-off pilot in Vietnam and hear a little bit about your career in the Army. Let's fast forward to 2006 when you started as a Red Cross volunteer at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Now, this is a time when there's a lot of wounded warriors returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. What made you become a Red Cross volunteer? Sure. I retired from a full-time job in 2004. And my wife and I wanted to do some traveling, which we have done nothing but a lot of traveling until COVID came along. But we were watching on television just about every night, people that were being horribly wounded in the Middle East wars and coming back to Walter Reed. And specifically, I didn't know it at the time, but I would be seeing news coverage of amputees that were ending up in the Military Advanced Training Center at Walter Reed. And I just got to thinking about, gee, when I was a dust-off pilot in Vietnam, that was truly the most satisfying thing I'd ever done in my life. And I kind of like in my retirement to go back to serving with patients and doctors and the medical community, just wanted to get close to it once again. So I went to Walter Reed and told him I wanted to be a volunteer. And it turns out that if you want to be a volunteer at Walter Reed, you have to be a member of the Red Cross. So I joined the Red Cross and I really wanted to be down in the uh, the military advanced training center. You'll hear me refer to it as the MATC, M-A-T-C, quite frequently. But uh, they said that they were full up on Red Cross volunteers. And I went to a ward and uh, worked on a ward for a couple of years and met a few people and got introduced to a fellow by the name of Bob Barr, who's one of the physical therapists. It's probably been in the MATC longer than anybody else ever. And uh, he brought me on as a Red Cross volunteer. And it kind of grew from there. But frankly, the bookends to my life are being a dust-off pilot in Vietnam at the beginning of my career, and then being a Red Cross volunteer at Walter Reed at the end of my service. So that's how I ended up there. So what are the duties of a volunteer and what kind of things do you do? 
So I'll talk about where we are today. It wasn't always quite like this, but we have at the peak of my service, which has been 16 years now, we had at Walter Reed like maybe a headcount of 600 volunteers. And after COVID, we lost a lot of folks that didn't want to come back, didn't want to be exposed, and we're down to around 400 or so. You can imagine that the 400 to 600 volunteers, there's a lot of different skill sets that come in there. And so there's a lot of different things that people can do. If you want to be a doctor at Walter Reed, but you're not in the service anymore and you're not a GS employee, you have to come through the Red Cross. So we have doctors, surgeons that are working at Walter Reed who are Red Cross volunteers. So that's the top of the scale. Then you get all the way down the bottom of the scale. And there's guys like me that the only thing I have to offer is labor. And so you get assigned to a, a clinic someplace and you can do things like bring the patients in from the waiting room to wipe down of equipment. You can help count repetitions like I do in physical therapy. You can wheel patients from inpatient to from one clinic back to the other clinic and wheelchairs. And of course, there's always sometimes an opportunity to talk to patients. And that's probably where between the interaction between the Red Cross volunteers and the patients, as well as the staff, gives me the most satisfaction. But whatever a Red Cross volunteer can do to assist the staff gives the staff more time to work with the patients. And there's a lot of stuff that the staff would have to do, especially in the Department of Rehabilitation where I work, that if the they have a Red Cross volunteer to do it, then the staff gets to spend more time with the patients and they're more effective in doing patient care. And I, I know that to be true because I, I hear it from the clinic chiefs all the time. They, you know, some of them have never been at a hospital where they've had this kind of Red Cross participation, but at Walter Reed, we've got it. There's other things you can do. We have patient ambassadors who greet people at the door coming in the hospital and help you know, find their way around the hospital, basically, since it's changed all the time. Right now, I've got two physical therapists that are Red Cross volunteers in the Department of Rehabilitation, and they come in and keep their skills up and help out as physical therapists. I've had a chiropractor be in there. I've had people that work in prosthetics. We do a, an amputee clinic once a week where we greet all the patients that can come in without an appointment and, and get amputee care. There's just It just goes on and on. Use your imagination and you can think of it. And furthermore, one of the things that you have to be careful of is that many times people show up and they think because they have an advanced degree or something like that, that they're going to be able to apply that to what they, they do at Walter Reed. Sometimes, yes, for the most part, no. It's kind of labor that you're going to do. And you need to be willing to set that aside and just dig in and do whatever is needed. And then the longer you're there, the more you get to do. The staff gets to know you. They get to know that you have other skills. They want to capture those skills and they utilize you. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of different stuff that goes on at Walter Reed if you're a volunteer there. So earlier in your career as a dust-off pilot, and medevac pilot, you had the opportunity to interact with patients. And now you're interacting with patients in a different environment. What would you say the difference, the main difference to you between the injuries that you saw in patients in Vietnam with what you're seeing in the MATC now? Well, as a dust off pilot in Vietnam, frankly, I saw everything. I, I don't even want to 
describe some of the things that I've seen because you you go out there and you're rescuing patients and your mission is to get the ones that are injured and get them back to care. But if we had room and we had the time and it didn't disrupt the mission of getting a patient back to the hospital as quick as possible, we took bodies. And so I've seen everything, just unimaginable. So what I think is probably different about now is the number of amputations that came out of the Gulf War and the Middle East Wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, just the IEDs and all that sort of thing. There's just a lot of amputations. And the one of the reasons I think you see so many of those is that the survivability has gone up dramatically in the medical community for serving these people that are coming off the battlefield and saving their lives. I guess if in the old days, if you had an amputation and you bled out, then you never made it to to therapy. So as a volunteer, you've had interactions with five different quadruple amputees. Can you tell me about those interactions and how you've seen them recover? I use uh, Brendan Morocco as, a, as an example. He's been on 60 Minutes, and I'm not saying anything that he hasn't already said publicly. But some of the quadruple amputees that were there, I had a little bit to do with, but not a lot to do with. But in the case of Brendan, he was the first one to survive. And there's some really humorous things that took place. I mean, these these people are amazing. They have lost all these limbs, and then they have this this attitude. In fact, all amputees, I'll, I'll state this because I think it's pretty important, all amputees that have a positive attitude, some of them don't for good reason, but if, if they do, their attitude is don't concentrate on what you no longer can do or you cannot do. Concentrate on what you can do. So whatever your disability is, just set that aside and figure out what abilities you still have and focus on that. And I saw that a lot with the amputees. Uh, Brendan showed up and a couple of uh, funny anecdotes uh, with Brendan. I saw him working with one of our physical therapists and I, boy, she was wonderful because she recognized uh, an opportunity for uh, Brendan to see some joy in his life while she was treating him. We had one of the service dogs in there called Raleigh. And Raleigh uh, plucked out of CNI school, CNI dog school, I think. And uh, Raleigh was floating around and jumped up on the, the mat that Brendan was uh, getting therapy with his uh, physical therapist. And Brendan, one of his arms was wrapped in like an ace bandage. And uh, that arm was amputated just below the elbow, I think. And so he had quite a bit of movement there. And Raleigh just decided that that was something he wanted to latch on to and grab the arm. And as soon as that happened, Brendan kind of shook what was left of his arm back and forth. And he and the dog were having a fall. And everybody that was there attending to Brendan just kind of stood back and let it happen because Brendan was having a great time. And so was Raleigh, the dog, having a great time. And this went on for a while till finally the dog actually tipped Brendan back on his back. So now he's laying down and the Dogs hovering over the top of him, all four, and Brendan couldn't get up on his own at that time. And, and the dog, he and the dogs were still going at it. And Brendan's wiggling his arm and the dog's shaking the arm and going at it, going at it. I think finally the dog got tired. I don't think Brendan got tired. And the dog jumped down and would tip Brendan back up so he was sitting up. And he turned to his therapist and said, look, Raleigh bit my arm off. And uh, we all got, to include Brendan, got a 
pretty good big chuckle out of that that somebody in that situation could say something like that. Turned on television one night because I spent one full day at Walter Reed every week. And it was on a Sunday, and I turned on 60 Minutes, and there's Brendan Morocco with his girlfriend talking 60 Minutes segment. And I go, oh, my gosh, I know Brendan. This is really cool. There he is on 60 Minutes. I'm listening to him talk, and I go, wow, he's very articulate, and this is really cool. And he started talking about getting a double arm transplant. And I sat there in front of the television just aghast. I'd never heard of such a thing. And I thought, wow, when I see Brendan, I'm going to have to talk to him about this. So it was only a couple of days later that I saw Brendan of the, the hospital. He liked cars. I like cars. So we were always talking about cars. And so I said, Brendan, I saw you at 60 Minutes. And I kind of gave him a, a you know, pat on the back about how great a job he did in talking on national television. I don't think I could do that. And started asking him all kinds of questions about this double arm transplant. I you know, where's it going to take place? And uh, who's going to do it? And, you know, when's it going to happen? And just lots of different questions were flowing through my head. And Brendan's answering the questions. And he uh, got down to the point with, okay, so you got to wait for a donor. So, Brendan, how long do you think you're going to have to wait for a donor? And he just looked at me and he said, you know, Steve, I don't know, but your arms look pretty good. So that was another uh, time to experience something with a, a quadruple amputee with a good spirit. So we've had the opportunity to interview Dr. Chuck Scoville, a physical therapist who directed the MATC, and also Rob Jones, who survived and recovered from an IED blast at the MATC. What makes the MATC so special in your opinion? Yeah, well, the MATC, and I think it's probably important to, to say this right now, the MATC is not exactly what it was in the past because of the, the great fortune we have that we don't have a lot of patients coming back from war zones with amputations. So the whole character of the MATC is, has changed somewhat. I mean, they still do the same things, but the characteristics of the patients are quite different from what we had. Instead of having a, a young population, we now have a much older population. We still have young people come in, people that, you know, lose a leg in a motorcycle accident or something like that, or have bone cancer, you name it. But it's a lot of folks that are retirees like myself that show up in the maxi. But when it was really full of these young soldiers, airmen, Marines, corpsmen, you name it, from all the services that were showing up with amputations, and the patient load was huge, and there was a lot for the therapists to do, a lot for the doctors to do, it was just a special place. And here's what they talked about that made it special. It's where magic took place. And that magic would be someone like Brendan, who shows up horribly wounded, and all they really want to do is be independent again. And you get them into prosthetics, and they take their first step. I mean, it's a ceremony in itself at the mad scene. Look, somebody's taking their first steps. The family is probably there with their cell phones, taking pictures and taking videos of somebody taking their first steps with a prosthetic. It's magic. Of course, we also have a lot of VIPs come through. I mean, from the president of the United States on down, you can imagine senators and high cabinet officials. But you also have royalty that comes through there. You have the baseball teams, the football teams, the hockey teams that come through, movie stars. 
Oprah Winfrey, NASCAR drivers, they have all kind of trekked through the mat scene. So in addition to the magic that takes place of learning how to walk and gaining freedom once again, you also have all the special attention that these amputees get. Not so much today, but that's the way it was. When we spoke earlier, you were telling me a little bit about your experience with interacting with some of the patients, and you didn't necessarily tell them that you had been injured in combat. And other folks that we've talked to talk about the sheer importance of that peer visitors and peer mentors for the folks who are undergoing rehab. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience and when you did share your injuries with patients and the importance of those peer mentors? Let's talk about the peer mentor program. It was really big in the old hospital and less so in the new hospital. But I think part of that has to do with the change in the patients because it's it's just different now than what it was. But back when we had lots and lots, there were a number of veterans who were amputees that would show up and kind of visit with all the amputee patients in the hospital and just visit with them and give them the expectation that, hey, I lost my legs in Korea, but I went on to have a job. I did this, I did that, and you're going to do the same thing. And so it was kind of a morale booster for the old guys to come in that are amputees. Then there's peer visitors who are peers, truly peers, in that they are about the same age. And the peer visitor program would go out of their way to make sure that if they had a guy who was missing one leg above the knee and the other leg below the knee, I'll bet you there's another patient in the hospital that's six months more recovered that has the exact same injury. And let's get that peer down here to talk to this brand new patient that just lost his legs and say, look, if this happened to me six months ago and look where I am today, this is where you're going to be and this is what to expect. It just makes sense when you think about it. If you know, Losing a limb has just got to be so traumatic. I mean, I can't relate to it specifically because it didn't happen to me. But if it happened to me and I and I was had lost an arm, to have some person come in and said, hey, I just lost the, my, the same arm six months ago and I've got this new prosthetic. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and I'm going to get out of here soon and blah, blah, blah. It just goes on and on. That's what the peer visitation program is all about. So you had the old guys who can say, hey, I got wounded back in you know 1950, something or other, and I've had a full life. And then you have the current patients that are peers of amputees that have similar injuries, and they get to talk to them about what's going to happen. That's what the peer program is about. I, I witnessed it. In fact, uh, one of the clinic chiefs uh, knew that I was in there so much that she asked me to go through uh, peer visitor training, and I, and I went through with some of these instructors soon to see what it is that they plan to do and all that. I never really got to be a peer visitor for obvious reasons. I have all my limbs, but... I know what the training is about. I know what the objective was, and I saw how they were making it uh, work. I wish that they had a more active program than what they have right now. But then again, there's there's just not that many amputees that would fit that circumstance that we had back during the wars. So you've now been volunteering for over 16 years. And during that time, you've seen the generosity of the American people towards the amputees. And what are some of the special events that you've been able to interact with the amputees and you've seen them be able to do 
that really demonstrates the kindness and generosity of the American public? Sure. Well, let me tell you about one of the visits. I can't remember who it was. I'm not a hockey fan, but the it's one of the one of the big teams. For, I think it was one out of Chicago, the Blackhawks. Is that right? That's right, the Blackhawks. Yeah. So they won the Stanley Cup during the time frame that I was at the old hospital, and the whole team came to visit, and they brought with them the Stanley Cup, obviously. And the Stanley Cup has a handler. And when he came in, I could see he was kind of by himself trying to move this big box that had the Stanley Cup in it. And I went over and asked him, I said, do you need any help? And he said, yeah. And he pulls out an extra set of gloves, you know, and he said, put these gloves on. And so we both had gloves on and we opened up the box and we got the Stanley Cup out, and found a place in the center of the mat seat to set it up. And he got on his cloth and polished off any fingerprints that were on it. Everything was really cool. And then we brought in the families and, and the amputees who wanted to be there. Of course, all the players there. It turns into chaos when, when they're there, you know, because every family member's got somebody that they can talk to. And there's a lot of noise and all that sort of thing. And then, of course, there's the picture taken. And the next thing we know, one of the family members takes his infant child and sets him in the Stanley Cup and gets the wife to snap a picture with him holding the baby in the Stanley Cup. And of course, one person sees that, then somebody else has got to do it. So I don't know how many babies went through that Stanley Cup that day, but all I know is, what did I need those gloves for? Let's see, I belong to a sports car club, and the sports car club wanted to come over and do a... Uh, wounded warrior Raleigh. And so uh, I had a friend uh, that was a single amputee, AK, above the knee. And he was a Marine and he was a, a sports car driver professionally. And I had a sports car and I said, hey, you want to go with me and be my navigator? And he said he'd love it. And so it was it was really special. We did the rally. We were the last ones in because I was showing off my car and we kept missing our turns. And we were just having a ball. And we went to the ceremony and the, there were VA people there and they had photography going on. And there was, you know, people being interviewed and prizes being handed out and all that sort of thing to all these wounded warriors. It was just really cool. And of course, uh, we had a great time, but we were losers. But I had promised him we could drive my car. And he was getting pretty tired and it came time to break up. And I said, well, okay, you can drive a car, you know, after we break up from here. And so we, I went out and I pulled the car around to the front door and I opened both doors and I went in to get this gentleman. And he had a, a cane in one hand and his arm over my shoulder. And I practically dragged him out of the place. He was exhausted and stuffed him in the, uh, the driver's seat. And the VA person that was there that had a photographer, they were taking pictures of all this stuff as we were getting in. He walked over and said, oh, you're showing him your car. And I just looked at him and I laughed and I slammed the door. I said, no, he's going to drive it. And I went around the other side and got in and the, the jaw on the VA representative dropped right down to his chest because he couldn't believe that this poor guy with a prosthetic that went from almost his hip all the way down to the to his foot was going to drive the car. So. I, I got to witness a lot of things like that. Uh, the American people, they really stepped up. You talked a little bit about Brendan Morocco. Were there any other particular inspiring patients that you had the opportunity to develop a personal relationship with? I know so many of them that they, they come back and they remember my name and I can't remember theirs. I've been kind of a constant presence there for a long, long time. So I know a lot of them. They come back and it was great to see them again. But 
the, the personal relationship, you know, they, they come in, they go through re rehabilitation, and then they're gone. So I think the answer is I know a lot of them. I will tell you a quick story about the fact that I had never talked about my being in the Army. I really felt the stigma of being a Vietnam vet and the fact that, you know, I, I didn't talk for four years to anybody who asked me about Vietnam. It's like, you know, that was the war we lost and you're one of the losers, that, that kind of an attitude. So after a while, that attitude started to change. And then it's about the same time that I started volunteering. But I really was there, and that's the way all volunteers should be, in my opinion. You know, I interview a lot of volunteers to work in the Department of Rehab, and this is one of the things I pounded in their head. You know, why are you there? You know, you should be there for the patients and the staff. If you're, if you're there just for yourself, because you want to, you know, maybe you're a young person, you want to stick it on a resume or something, that's not the right reason to be a Red Cross volunteer. You're there for the patients. And one of the things that you, you need to worry about is if you have a military background, you can easily find yourself talking to some patient and the patient says, oh, yeah, I was in the such and such air cavalry and I did this and that. Oh, yeah, I was a Vietnam pilot in Vietnam. And let me tell you about this. And let me tell you about that. And the next thing you know, it's all about me and not the patient. And so I just avoided it altogether by never bringing it up. But if somebody specifically asked me, I was more than happy to talk about it. But I always had in the back of my mind, I'm there as a Red Cross volunteer for the patient and the staff. That's that's why we're there. Now, I had an instance that really made me happy. It happened about three or four years ago. I had met somebody in 2006. He was a Marine lieutenant with a single amputation above the knee. And he became a captain while he was going through rehab. And the Marines kept him, and he went back to Vietnam. He was deployed back to Vietnam. So I knew him. I didn't know him very well. Once in a while, I'd see him and, and talk to him and find out what he was doing. And the next thing I know, he's back at Walter Reed getting some more work done on his prosthetics. He's a major, and he's going back. To, I said Vietnam. Sorry. Not Vietnam, but back to Iraq. And he went back to Iraq a second time. I think he was a company commander, and he was a major second time. It was just amazing to see this guy go through all that. And then every once in a while, as the years went by, he decided to get out of the Marine Corps. And I'd see him in prosthetics, you know, every couple of years. I was lucky if I could remember his name. And of course, I wear a name tag, so everybody knows my name. And I walked into prosthetics one day, and he's sitting there. And I, I just looked at him and said, Dave, how are you doing? What the heck are you doing here? And he looked at me, and he says, Steve, you SOB, you never told me you were in the Army. And I just looked at him and I got the biggest smile on my face that, you know, I, I just looked at him and said, yep, mission accomplished. We had a great relationship and I never, you know, and I, and I told him, I said, well, you never asked me. So well, I've heard all kinds of stuff about you now because I've been ratted out by other people, but that's, that's fine. I love it. So I've had a lot of great experiences with Red Cross volunteers at the San Antonio Military Medical Center. And one that's notable for me is that I have had high school students who have come to the vascular surgery department and have spent half a summer or even some, even the full summer. And it just so happens that this year, one of the high school volunteers from several years ago just started medical school, Elise. But if someone wants to become a Red Cross volunteer and help out in the military healthcare system, and let's just use Walter Reed for an example, how would someone go about making that happen? 
Yeah, good question. I'm glad to hear that. I presume that's a Brooks Army, Brooks Army Medical Center you're talking about? Yes, sir. We have a, a Red Cross volunteer program that we do every summer. And we bring in anywhere from 30 to 50. So I think we've had as many as 60 come. And it's been, uh, this year was a five-week program. In the past, it's been a six-week program. And it's kind of the same thing that, that you're talking about. We give them all an assignment someplace in the hospital to be volunteers to actually do the same thing that a regular Red Cross volunteer would do. But then one morning per week, we do training. And I can't remember exactly what we called it, MAT, Medical Awareness Training for Teens. And we call our kids volunteers. And they, they all have a t-shirt on that's got the Red Cross on it, volunteer. And they, you know, it's a, it's a great program. If you just want to be a regular volunteer, you have to go on the Red Cross web website, www.redcrossoneword.org. And they've got links there that can put you on there. And you go ahead and click on all those and you go through a screening process. And that screening process results in you going through a background check and that sort of thing. And then they do an interview to find out what your interests are. If you want to come to Walter Reed, you need to make sure during that interview process that you want a referral to Walter Reed, because otherwise you can get lost in the system. But the whole purpose of that initial screening is both for security reasons for the Red Cross. And then once you've you know been made aware of all the opportunities that the Red Cross has for volunteering, you can say, I want to be a Red Cross volunteer at Walter Reed. And then you get a referral. Then there's a whole process at Walter Reed that is necessitated by the fact that it's a military base and it's the president's hospital, congressmen and everybody else who come through there. So it's a it's a lot of uh, in-processing to become a Red Cross volunteer at Walter Reed. But once you've in-processed and you've gotten your badges and you have access to the base, you've gone through your medical examination, get your background checked. Done. Then you go to the red uh, into the Red Cross office for a couple of weeks of what we call orientation, where you learn what the Red Cross at Walter Reed is all about, what the various things are, and if you're interested in getting out of the Red Cross office and going out into the clinics, we have a book with uh, requirements or requests from the various clinics for volunteers, and you can read through those requests and determine whether or not any of those things fit your interest. And then the Red Cross will place you there. In my case, I've got a group that does, uh, I'm responsible for the whole Department of Rehabilitation. So the Red Cross office, if they have somebody that thinks they're interested in physical therapy or occupational therapy, prosthetics or physical medicine, research, whatever it is, they can be referred to me. I'll give them a tour of the Department of Rehabilitation. And then if we have a good fit someplace within uh, rehab, I'll place them. And that's how you get to be a Red Cross volunteer at Walter Reed. So you mentioned that being in Washington, D.C., you see a lot of VIPs coming through from the Pentagon, from Congress, from the White House even. Going back to the high-up tempo years of the war, you also saw a lot of celebrities coming in. Who was your favorite celebrity that came and visited while you were working there as a volunteer? Gary Sinise. I don't know if you heard stories about Gary Sinise. I mean, he is he's just been all over the veterans in terms of helping and promoting their welfare. So he would definitely be my favorite just because of what he's done, not because we're friends or anything like that. I know Oprah Winfrey came through, but I wasn't there the day she came through. You know, sometimes 
As a Red Cross volunteer, you're kind of like the staff. When a VIP comes through, they're there to see the patients. They're not there to see the Red Cross volunteer. They're not there to see the physical therapist. But frankly, almost all VIPs are interested in not just the patients, but everybody else is there. So when I should be standing off to the side while they're talking to patients, sometimes they'll walk right up to you as a Red Cross volunteer and you know, shake your hand and thank you for what you do, that sort of thing. I mean, one day some guy came up to me and he coined me and I had no idea who he was. Shame on me. I should have known. It turned out to be the deputy secretary of defense. I'm sure you know him now. I know him now. So one of the things as a volunteer in a hospital, you really get a, a unique behind the scenes look at the medical care that happens from a very unique perspective. So you've been in the military medical system as a volunteer for 16 years. What are your impressions of the quality of the care and the quality of the people that are involved in that care? I can't say enough good things about what I see. First of all, the docs, especially when you start talking about amputations, I mean, that's that's special stuff. And when I watch, and there's one doctor that, uh, I, he's got to be famous, but I don't know if he is or is not, but Dr. Potter, he uh, has done, I don't know how many amputations. But when Dr. Potter walks in, his focus is on the patient. And it's like a laser. There's just no doubt in my mind that uh, he is genuinely concerned about the recovery of that patient and whether or not the surgery was successful or not. So there's a man, and there's others like him, but his name just jumps out at me. He has an expertise that it's hard to find. I mean, where do you find that sort of thing? I'm sure you know as a doctor that, like in Vietnam, there were lots and lots of doctors that gained experience in war. When they brought it back to the States, they were the experts in various things that they would treat, various wounds and that sort of thing simply because they'd been exposed to so much of it. So you see that at Walter Reed and the staff between, you know, the doctors, the physical therapists, the occupational therapists. In fact, let me talk a little bit about Matsy. I know that Chuck Scoville probably covered this, but the Matsy was put there because they take all those specialties that are needed by an amputee patient. So they're co-located. You have physical therapists in the Matsy. You have occupational therapists in the MATSE, physical medicine nurses and caseworkers in the MATSE, and access to prosthetics, which is just down the hall from the MATSE. And their presence is there a lot. And so you just think of all the different specialties that a person might need. You know, an amputee who's going to learn how to use prosthetics, whether it's an arm, a leg, or both, he doesn't need just a physical therapist. He needs all those specialties to come together and work in a synergistic fashion to give him the best possible care that that person could get. And that's what I witnessed. That's why the MATSE is special. For all those other reasons I already mentioned, that's part of why the MATSE is special is all of those specialties that they need are there. And when I see a physical therapist who has run into something that, gee, I, I need to, one of the physical medicine doctors to help me out with this, bingo. All he's got to do is walk across the hall and get one of those docs and they're there doing whatever they need to do to take care of that patient. So that's that's my observation of the MATSI, especially when it was a high tempo. When the history books are written 50, 100 years from now, 
what would you want your legacy to be? How would you want to be remembered in the history books? I guess service to my country. My career has been just simply because I came in without a college degree. And then when I became a commissioned officer, I didn't have a typical home, so to speak, that I could grow up in. You know, I didn't come in as a second lieutenant in field artillery and grow up in the field artillery. So I found myself doing lots and lots of different things. And frankly, I wouldn't have had it any other way. But all of those things served our country, being starting out as a dust-off pilot, going back to Vietnam a second time as an assault helicopter company, coming back and serving in a field artillery unit down at Fort Bragg, uh, getting my first field artillery assignment, and then going to Alaska and commanding an air cavalry troop up there. Once again, that was all service to, to the country. And then I worked in a think tank for three and a half years. Army, that was back then it was called uh, Army's Concepts Analysis Agency. Now they call it the Center for something. But anyway, they changed their name. But that was war gaming to determine requirements for the, our military. So I did that. And then I became an acquisition expert. And I became a program manager on a black program. Once again, it was pushing the envelope of technology. It was just a, a, a great job. But it was to you know, service to the country. And then my last assignment in the military was with Ronald Reagan's Star Wars program. It was called the Strategic Defense Initiative Organization, or SDIO. And I ended up, because of my acquisition experience, working on the X-Band radar program and pretty much kicking that off from the get-go. Those radars, uh, one is the THAAD radar, came out of that program, and the other is the sea-based X-band radar, which is a monstrous radar out in the Pacific. Those radars are on alert today to defend America from a ballistic missile attack from you know somebody as crazy as perhaps the leader of North Korea. Those things are actually out there today, and I was a significant part of that program. But then when I retired, I went to work first for a consulting company, then ultimately for the Raytheon company. And all the stuff I was working on was all of Raytheon's products and air and missile defense programs. And so, you know, Patriot, you know, the National Missile Defense Programs, the, the X-Band radar, the, the kill vehicle for ballistic missiles, that was all the stuff that I worked on until I retired. So... Then I did the 16 years of uh, Red Cross. So my legacy, I would hope to be thought of as this guy dedicated his life to service to the country. That, that's awesome. You know, one of the things I think back to is when you first talked about going to the recruiting office for the Army. And just think if that West Point military band wasn't playing Hello, Dolly, <laughs> things might have been completely different in your life. But thank goodness that they were, and you went down to the recruiting office and signed up. Doug, that's an amazing observation. It's it's one that I've never connected. Well, we've been speaking with retired Lieutenant Colonel, Army aviator, and Red Cross volunteer, Steve Peth. Steve, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs, and thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you, Doug. I've really enjoyed it. Appreciate your doing this show. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.